0: In the end my argument is a simple one that trumpism um, uh fundamentally threatens the very mission of american higher education and that our leaders should more forcefully uh, oppose those forces as a way of preserving our mission uh and that they have not done so and even though trump is no longer president um trumpism is not gone And we can see that in um, lots of things that are happening in American politics today. And so we need to be prepared.
1: I'm Marisol Morales.
2: And I'm Andrew Seligson. Welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Marisol, how are you today?
1: Good. A little tired, uh, but happy that the sun is out here in Chicago, that snow has started melting. Not enough, but uh, yeah, we had some deep freezes uh, for a little while.
2: The sun is out here in Boston as well. I think it might be the same sun. I can't say for sure. And uh, a little bit of snow still out there, but it definitely is. it's, It's nice to have some nice weather.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm sure the folks in Texas are appreciating warmer weather now. So uh, shout out to them and um, hopes for a speedy recovery uh, after the, the madness that they experienced with the extreme weather.
2: Yeah, we had some friends down there who uh, it sounded pretty harrowing, like a week after all that started posting, hey, I finally have water again and stuff like that
1: yeah i had several family members down there and we were checking on them so thankfully everybody was okay but lost power and having to boil water and do all that stuff but
2: if if there's one upside to all of that which i mean it's a thin read but um i feel like many of us learned a lot about the way energy works in america and i had no idea that texas was actually the only state. It's completely separated from the rest of the grid. It's got its own regulatory structure. And, you know, I don't know that this is going to lead to dramatic change, but I feel like Texans have woken up to the fact that they are vulnerable in some serious ways. So hopefully uh, people will take that someplace and we'll see some, some improvement, but yeah, scary stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think the other sort of piece of it, too, is the way communities came together to support each other when, again, uh, government failed to. We saw that in Puerto Rico with Hurricane Maria and like just, you know, the power of community in in many ways. Uh, But that still doesn't, um, you know, sort of take over for the fact that government has a function and it needs to do things like make sure the lights stay on and water works and things are protected.
2: Yeah, I mean, it is interesting, right? We've started to see, for example, some serious scholarship about the question of, in what ways does the United States start to look like a failed state? And when you cannot respond to basic health challenges, when you can't respond to weather emergencies and other kinds of natural disasters, yeah, that hopefully is a wake-up call that we need some conversations about how to restore capacity to governments at all levels. Uh so hopefully we're doing some things that might prompt some of those conversations and others too. I think that is the case, in fact. So yes, if if all that uh is a direction we head because of some of the recent challenges, that would at least be a positive outcome. Uh do you have some things to share about upcoming events, Marisol, in the campus compact universe?
1: Yeah, so for our listeners, we have a lot of great programming coming up. Uh, I'll mention a few things and then Andrew, uh, you're welcome to announce some things too. So first, I'm really excited that we're going to be uh, opening up our second cohort for Engaged Scholars In- Initiative um, or ESI. So ESI is designed to develop a diverse group of early career faculty and staff. Uh, who can strengthen their own critical community engaged scholarship and lead equity focused change at their institution and communities. And so um, that application is uh, available now and those are due March 26. So please look out for that it will be a national cohort Where last year, uh, we had different regional cohorts, um, and it'll be virtual so excited about that and uh, that first cohort of BSI, our amazing group of folks and leaders, and so excited to sort of expand that um, that community. And then, uh, second, uh, we have another round of our Fusion course um, available and coming up in March. Um, so Fusion is um, an online uh, education. A uh, course focused towards faculty and community engagement professionals that looks at enhancing online education through community based learning. So it's ways for folks to learn about integrating community engagement into online learning. Um, that is c- the registration you can find on the compact.org website. Um, So look out for that. I believe that starts March 26th. um, But don't quote me on that. Um, Also, as part of Fusion, we have a a webinar series that's connected to it. So that is all about uh, online uh, courses and community engagement. So, again, check out compact.org to find out more about those webinars, about the Fusion course and the ESI program. Um, Andrew, you want to announce the other things we've got going?
2: Absolutely. Uh, So one thing... I would love to share. We are digging in for kind of another round of an initiative we launched really five years ago, focused on supporting campuses in what we call civic action planning, thinking about how institution-wide campuses can maximize the ways they're engaged with communities beyond the campus and, and maximize the contributions they're making, and doing so in ways that maximize student learning and positive community outcomes, engage faculty research capacity and and the rest of the institution. And, you know, we thought in light of the dramatic changes that have gone on in the last year, the way that uh, all sorts of forms of inequality and vulnerability and challenges have been magnified in communities, that this was a good moment for campuses to either revisit work they had done in this way and and look ahead uh, or to to engage in this process for the first time. So we'll be doing various events. Uh, The first one, which I can share, is a Civic Action Planning Institute that can be joined either by individuals or uh, teams from institutions. It's Friday, March 19, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern time. And folks can find more information about that on our website at compact.org. So a Civic Action Planning Institute, Uh, for institutions that really think this is a good time to think about how can we maximize the contributions we're making to communities beyond the campus. So again, Friday, March 19, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. And then I also wanted to share uh, information on upcoming regional compact uh, conferences. So Campus Compact uh, will be across our network supporting two conferences this spring. The first one is our Western Region Conference. Uh, and the second, the Midwest, they're both online. And the Western Region Conference is March 17. The Midwest Conference is May 25. And again, information and registration people can find uh, at compact.org. So if you head there, you will see information on both of those conferences as well as on the Civic Action Planning Institute. So we're uh, excited about a lot of things happening in our network. Those are a few highlights, and we look forward to seeing folks uh, in all. All those contexts, or to uh, to having new folks join or seek to join those kinds of uh, programming efforts. All right, let's uh, let's jump into our interview for this episode. I had the opportunity to sit down with Eric Mlin, who's been a past guest on the podcast for a totally different reason. Eric is a distinguished faculty fellow at the Kennan Institute for Ethics and a lecturer at the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. He was previously uh, the founding director of Duke Engage, which many know as a a really extraordinary uh, program engaging students in working communities in the United States and abroad. Uh, Eric also served as the assistant vice president, vice provost for civic engagement at Duke University. The sort of particular reason that I uh, was interested in a conversation with Eric for our podcast is that back in October he wrote a piece that was published in Inside Higher Ed. It was published October 1st, and it was called What Are We Waiting For? And it really raised the question of why, as we were seeing increasing attacks on the integrity of our elections at that time, you know, about a month before the election, why we weren't hearing more from college and university presidents and others with platforms through higher education to, to call attention to the threat to our democracy, and in you know the aftermath of the attack on the Capitol on January six, and the kind of persistent, um, I guess, persistence of the voices, uh, either trying to you know, minimize the significance of that attack, uh, kind of make excuses for the attacks on the election. I thought it would be interesting to talk to Eric about the continuing thinking and writing that he's doing on this subject of how higher education should respond in the face of Kind of the persistence of voices that are interested in undermining democratic institutions and practices, and so that was the conversation we had, and uh, we will turn to it right now. Eric Malin, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. You in the, the Inside Higher Ed piece back in October express, I think it's fair to say, disappointment with higher education leaders, presidents in particular and others. And I'm wondering if you could just lay out why
0: back then you, you felt that disappointment. I'd be happy to, Andrew, and thank you for having me on the podcast and uh, for having this conversation with me. You and I have had the opportunity to have this conversation uh, amongst ourselves, and I'm eager to uh, to involve a broader, uh, a broader set of stakeholders in what I think is a really important conversation about Trumpism and American higher education. From the very beginning of um, Trump's election, uh, I found myself disappointed and puzzled. That higher education leaders had not spoken out um, more actively about the threats that Trumpism posed to higher ed, and um, there are some exceptions to that, as you know, and we can talk about some of the university leaders who have been quite uh, quite critical um, of Trumpism and quite alarmed at some of the attacks that Trumpism launched on higher education. But in the end, my argument is a simple one that. Trumpism um, uh, fundamentally threatens the very mission of American higher education and that our leaders should more forcefully uh, oppose those forces as a way of preserving our mission Uh, and that they have not done so. And even though Trump is no longer president, um, Trumpism is not gone. And we can see that in um, lots of things that are happening in American politics today. And so we need to be prepared And learn lessons from what did happen and what didn't happen over the last four years, um, particularly amongst our leaders speaking out.
2: So it's it's probably worth saying, uh, given what you just mentioned, that we're recording this uh, on February 11, which is I think day three of the impeachment trial, the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. And so I guess I'm I'm interested. uh, We might as well start with this. Uh, You've talked about. One thing is being critical of the president and the former president uh, when he was president in the actions he took. But you're also using the term Trumpism, which is a term you use in the piece inside higher ed. And I'm wondering if you could just say a little bit about what you mean when you use the term
0: Trumpism. Yeah, that's the, I'm glad you asked, Andrew, because as uh, I, I do want to um, I've worked to define that. And I think the interesting thing is um, that uh, even though Trump himself probably does not have a coherent philosophy. I think that we can look over the last four years and say that Trumpism is a combination of right-wing populism and anti-establishment beliefs that include uh, an intense professed patriotism, economic nationalism, and nativism, coupled with an assault on some of the core values of liberal democracy, such as freedom of the press, freedom of speech, and open and fair elections. That to me is Trumpism. I would add um, in my, uh, and I've talked to a lot of colleagues about this. I've given talks at a number of universities about this. There is uh, an interesting conversation to be had about whether we're talking about um, something that's broader than Trump. um, And maybe that we shouldn't use the term Trump and university presidents would be more likely to speak out. I frankly think we. I think Trumpism is a distinct, um, a form of American right-wing populism that needs to be called out for what it is.
2: So I guess one of the questions, and maybe this relates to the point you were just making, is you know, I, I I think that probably if if one spoke to university leaders about this, many would say, you know, what you just identified is a kind of a set of views that challenge core principles of the American constitutional liberal democratic tradition, free speech, free press, uh, equality, of, uh, et cetera, equality, political equality. And what's important is not identifying a particular opponent or proponent of that view, what's important is articulating the importance of the principles that are under attack. And we've been doing that. We've been defending free speech. We've been defending the right of all of our students to participate fully in the political process. We've been defending particularly students who've come under assault like DACA students or other immigrant students, members of religious minorities in our communities. We've been defending all those things actively and in some cases with, with specific action steps where it made sense in our role, but otherwise just rhetorically in public, why isn't that enough from your perspective? Why is it important to call out something, whether identified with the former president himself or a broader ideology and, and attack that? Why is that part of the role of higher education leaders from your perspective?
0: It's a, it's a it's a great question, and I think part of the conversation that I hope um, our that this conversation prompts. Um, because I think without calling out um, the specific threat to those values, we run the risk of creating moral equivalents that that are not morally equivalent. Um, and that to not specifically say, that this is under a unique threat at this particular moment in American history is to ignore the, um, the seriousness of the situation at this moment. Your work, Andrew, and Campus Compact and the work of AAC and you and all of our you know, colleagues who are part of the um, civic movement in American higher education have always defended these values, but they are under unique salt right now Had been during Trump, continue to be, particularly now by state legislatures that are feeding off of Trumpism. And, um, you know, there's a 900 pound gorilla sitting in the room. And to not name the 900 pound gorilla is to leave ourselves vulnerable to it. And that's, um, uh, look, I think at the very least, university leaders should speak out in defense of the values that make liberal education possible. but I think they have to do more at this moment.
2: So one of the things you just kind of in the piece from October, uh, you mentioned that you're familiar with a whole set of arguments and you kind of list them uh, on the other side. And I'm wondering, I just wanted to kind of uh, go through some of those in a little more uh, and spend a little time on those. So one argument you anticipate that folks might make in response is to say that, uh, look, the you know, universities, whether because they're public or nonprofit, have an obligation in some cases, a legal obligation to be nonpartisan and that the president in the role of the leader of that institution should be very careful not to put a thumb on the scale in the context of partisan elections. And as a consequence, again, should maybe speak about principles, et cetera, but really shouldn't be in the business of criticizing people who are running for public office as the president, you know, (laughs) all elected officials in the United States now, I think are permanently running for office. So that, uh, yeah, so that, you know, you should stay away from those things and that, um, there, there's a principled reason to do so. So, uh, how do you think about that set of issues?
0: Yeah, I think, um, I I very much admire some writing that William Galston has done on this where he makes the case that um, we need to distinguish between policy disputes where university presidents, you know, um, need to really talk about both sides of a particular policy debate and distinguish between those disputes and regime level threats. So this is not a partisan argument. Uh, I, I don't think I'm asking university presidents to take a partisan position. What I'm asking them to do is to take a position on what I see as a regime level threat, that is, a threat to American democracy. And American democracy is essential for the um, uh, full functioning of American uh, uh, higher education. So, uh, you know, there's another really interesting argument about this, Andrew, which is that. Many university presidents say we only should talk about things that are close to the university that affect the very um, direct interests of the university. So during during uh, Trump's years, we did have universities uh, speaking out, for example, on DACA because we had undocumented students. We had university presidents speaking out about other immigration issues, the Muslim ban, uh, the confusion created about international students coming to the country. They also spoke out the rich institutions um, against the endowment tax, right? Um, uh, which is an interesting case uh, in point. My argument is very clear on this: that um, that American democracy, the health of American democracy, is a proximate issue for American higher education. It is just as proximate as DACA as an endowment tax and um, as immigration policy. And so though one may argue about whether universities should have taken a position on the Vietnam War, for example, there's a rich literature on that. And I I understand how people could come out on both sides of that. That's different than the health of American democracy where um, I think university presidents um, will find themselves um, constrained uh, if American democracy is uh, attacked along the lines as it has been over the last four years of Trump.
2: So sort of returning to that frame of partisanship or nonpartisanship, it, you know, I think I think one of the challenges with distinguishing. So on the one hand, it sounds like one could distinguish policy differences from regime level threats. On the other hand, I think an observer of American politics right now might take a look at the way, for example, it appears that uh, the Republican Party in Congress is aligning on the question of first of all uh, the way it handled the election and the number of House members who uh, continued to question, you know, the legitimacy of the ballot counting uh, into the second week of January. The the very few. Uh, House members who voted to impeach the president. Somebody might look at this and say, look, the thing you're calling Trumpism is another name for the policy views espoused by the Republican Party. As a practical matter, there's no daylight there. So economic nationalism, nativism, uh, and opposition to the application of the First Amendment to defend the free press as it has been, et cetera, these are actually the views of one of the two political parties in the world's oldest democracy. And so whatever else you think of it, there isn't actually an option to be nonpartisan and to attack Trumpism from a principled standpoint. You're simply asking university presidents to adopt the position of the Democratic Party in opposition to the Republican Party. So what's what's wrong with that view?
0: Well, uh, you know, it's funny, Andrew, as I was uh, thinking about our conversation, uh, yeah, uh, about this conversation that we were going to have, um, I thought of that issue. Because, you know, this is, uh, and and I would say uh, one thing about it, even though um, I think you are essentially correct, uh, I think we're starting to see some fissures in the Republican Party, um, more than we had a month ago or two months ago. Um, And, uh, you know, whether whether we're surprised or not about how much the Republican Party continues to echo so much of Trumpism, um, there is some daylight. And that daylight, I think, makes this argument um, uh, at least worth having. If in the end, I I just want to go as far as I can on this with you, Andrew, if in the end, um, opposing Trumpism means being opposed to the majority of elements in one of our particular political parties. So be it. I mean, you know, um, that's not a reason to back off. It's a reason to say one of our parties has been taken over by our worst instincts in this country Um, and uh, and that we need to call it out. And I understand that will put university presidents into a very um, difficult position. but I think it's a position that, that that they need to deal with. You know, I'd say one other thing about that. Um, this is the hard part, and this is where some of the work that you and I might do together on this moving forward can be really useful. Larry Bacow at Harvard um, has said, you know, he is he has been uh, interestingly articulate about this, but very cautious. But at one point, and it may have been his inaugural address, um, or, or or maybe later, where he said that. University presidents shouldn't take views on issues upon which reasonable people may disagree. Well, (laughs) I get that. And I think I agree with it. I think the challenge for us is to figure out how we identify what are the issues upon which reasonable people may disagree. And that's a conversation that higher education should have. that's not clear in my mind, but I think it's a useful. Um, you know, you know. Uh, can reasonable people disagree that Trumpism is an attack on American democracy? Let's have that conversation. When I teach about this with my students, I do spend one day on Trump as a defender of democracy. I do, um, and we look at you know his attack on the deep state, his taking us out of international treaties as a way. As a, what, what is the argument one would make? Um, And I think universities should be places, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have the conversation that you are encouraging about whether this is partisan or not, but I think in the end we have to, our leaders need to take a stand.
2: So I I can imagine, um, you know, you mentioned that some folks had, had spoken up and I imagine that many university presidents, maybe especially public university presidents, but others too would say, Look, there's a couple things I know that would happen if I were to, you know, do the thing that that Milan is telling me I ought to do. One is no one would care. No one has listened to a university president on a major question of public policy or has had their own views influenced just because the president of the university says it. So I can be pretty certain that it's a, a voice in the wilderness. I can also be pretty certain that people much more vulnerable than me will pay a price for it. So the legislature may cut funding to us that will hurt students on financial aid. It will hurt uh, you know, hourly workers who are the first people who are going to have to let go because of those cuts. Uh, it will... Potentially damage the freedom of my faculty to teach because they will come under increasing pressure from public officials. And I can predict that my attracting a lot of attention to the campus as a sort of political zone zone will have that impact. So people are going to be hurt by it. It won't be me. I will feel good because I did the right thing. I stood up, but it will have no positive impact. And it's it's quite predictable that it will harm people who are less less positioned to endure it than I am. Uh, why is that wrong?
0: Well, it's wrong first, because what you're talking about in terms of. Interference in um, what faculty can do is already happening, right? We're, we're, we're already in the in in. I don't know about the middle of that because I don't know how long it goes, but we're already experiencing that. You know, uh, your listeners, you and your listeners may know about the very controversial attack that the Department of Education had on um, the joint Duke-UNC Middle East Studies programs and Title VI funding, which was um, incredibly scary. And uh, some people spoke out, but our leaders were relatively quiet about it. We're seeing attacks across the United States, Andrew, by state legislatures. This happened in North Carolina years and years ago under Governor Pat McCrory, where he questioned the existence of women's studies programs um, and other, (coughs) excuse me, other programs like that. So it's not as if university presidents speaking out are gonna start this. University presidents need to speak out because it's happening already. Second, I understand that public universities find themselves in different positions than private universities. And um, I think public universities need to, in the end, uh, you know, leaders of public universities probably need to be more cautious. I get it. Um, And university, university presidents that I've spoken to about this issue have voiced exactly your caution. That is, what's to be gained? Um, What's to be gained by this? And I think in the end. Um, I think i i I hope that university presidents would sleep better at night knowing that they're defending the fundamental principles that um that underlie American higher education because if they don't, they're gonna find themselves um with a higher education system that they that we don't want. You know, Andrew, I don't mean to be um hysterical about this, but I think if one thing that we've learned, over the last four years is that the unimaginable is imaginable. Um, things that we never thought would happen in the American political system have happened and are happening. And uh, American higher education is not exceptional. And so um, university presidents, by not um, putting a stake in the ground on these fundamental principles, risk the very essence of our mission statements and the very essence of the work that we do. And That's why they need to do it with all of the risks uh, that that come with that. You know, I can just briefly say about my own university, um, uh, you know, uh, our president um, has been understandably cautious about what he says, and he's defended voting, um, and he's allowed, and university leadership here at Duke, to their credit, has allowed me in a whole variety of settings to launch this conversation. Um, to say, OK, what 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 do we need to be doing without saying Melinda's is right? Let's do it. And and um, that's what I'm asking for at this point, uh, with the hope that it might influence some to take bolder stands um, or to reflect back on the period where Trump was president and say, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? And what are we going to do next time we're under assault like this?
2: I guess one of the things that strikes me is that you know, when I sort of have dug a little bit as a kind of so for our listeners, uh, Eric and I uh, are graduates of the same Ph.D. program in political science at the University of Minnesota, where I think neither of us. Well, actually, I don't know. Did you specialize in comparative politics or international relations?
0: International. I did international relations and American politics.
2: OK, in American politics. So I was about to say, we're neither one of us specializing in comparative politics. So that's true. And. You know, so like a lot of people, I was led to read some of the comparative politics literature over the last few years about the decay of democracy and what that looks like and the extent to which we ought to think that it's happening in the United States. And one of the things that is striking about that literature is that it, you know, it turns out that one factor that's really important in sort of determining the fate of threatened democracies is the actions of those who are closely aligned ideologically with the sort of the folks who are seeking to destroy democracy. So they're they're sort of near cousins ideologically, whether they decide to go along with the, the destruction of democracy or whether they pull back, sacrifice some of their policy objectives, et cetera, but decide to side with the defenders of democracy. And, you know, it seems like one of the and I think, again, in the right now, the very few, as you were mentioning, the the sort of beginnings of a ripple of opposition to Trumpism that we're seeing it on the Republican side in Congress, I think, shows the importance of that. But I wonder whether it doesn't also just show the irrelevance of the question of what people who are publicly perceived as already way over on the other side, what they do. So, in other words. I think in the public mind, higher education is seen as a liberal institution, politically liberal, not in the sense of liberal education, but politically liberal. That That is in part, uh, it's a result of an intentional effort, obviously, in part by conservative media, et cetera, to pigeonhole higher education in that way. But I think it's been a successful effort that most Americans would agree with, regardless of their own political views. And as a consequence, most people would just sort of rule out serious attention to what what comes out of a sector they've already identified as on one side. And so, I mean, do you think there is so in that context, I could imagine a serious argument being made that what's most important for higher education is to try to reposition it as I think it was for a long time perceived, not quite in the way that courts are above the fray, but to a certain extent above the fray of the back and forth of partisan politics and positioned in a way where, when higher education leaders and you know faculty members with positions whatever spoke that it was with a, a certain kind of authority and that it, it it warranted the attention of the public and i think you know do you do you have any concern that jumping in in this way pushes further into the future the day when we might see a return to a kind of legitimate authority grounded in study and reason and the things that the academy you know wants to be associated with yeah
0: it's a it's it's a great question um excuse me I, i think that um another i i've been thinking about this and and the future of american higher education and you're right You know, I think 75 percent of Republicans and even a majority of Democrats uh, report with Pew that American higher education is going in the wrong direction. We are not popular institutions right now. And we are perceived as being on the left and we are on the left. Uh, I wish we had more conservative voices uh, at at a place like Duke University. But I wish, Andrew, that. in conjunction with what I I hope universities would do about Trumpism, that we would also be very sensitive to the kinds of uh, interesting and um, resonant critiques that some of our colleagues in political science are launching now about, you know, Michael, I'm taken by Michael Sandel's The Tyranny of Merit, Lonnie Guineer's The Tyranny of Meritocracy, Michael Lynn's new book, where I think what we need to do, what we need to do simultaneous to defending the core values of American higher education by calling out Trumpism is also to recognize our elitism at the same time and to do things like, for example, you know, what Sandel argues, which is elite institutions of higher education should have some form of uh, a lottery. For admissions to some of those institutions, I would. I wish at the same time that American higher education spoke out against that. Leaders spoke out against Trumpism. That we would eliminate uh, alumni favoritism in the admissions process. For example, um, I think we're doing some a really interesting experiment right now by getting rid uh, by making um, standardized testing optional uh, because of COVID, which is uh, causing a flood of applications to elite institutions. Um, but also we know that if you wanna predict SAT scores, you look at wealth. So what are the things that we can do in conjunction with defending our values that would also help recognize the legitimate the legitimate claims of the legitimate grievances of right-wing populism? Because I think there are legitimate grievances. You and I have had the opportunity, Andrew, To talk in the past about Kathy Kramer's book about resentment, who, you know, she anticipated Trump. It's a brilliant book. Um, And looking at Scott Walker, you know, um, how do we separate the legitimate grievances from what we see as illegitimate um, racism or misogyny? That's the challenge before us. And I think universities can play a leading role in doing that. We're a wealthy institution's elite American higher education, and we have a lot of work to do. Um, to uh, make sure that, as Sandell says, that we're not looking down upon those who don't share the credentials that all of us have. I'm excited about that project. Um, And I think COVID-19 gives us the opportunity to embrace that more. So I hope those two things happen together. And that would at least, uh, I think, temper some of the legitimate critiques of American higher education that you cite.
2: Derek, I want to read you a section, a quotation from the piece you wrote back in October. Then I have a question about it. If the legitimate results of the November election are rejected and chaos ensues, it will be worth asking ourselves, what did we do or fail to do with a privileged perch we inhabit at elite institutions like Duke if we do not call out this threat to democracy? And what will we tell our grandchildren when they ask whether we fought for liberal democracy itself when it came under assault? So I, I was thinking about that passage uh, as I was watching some of the footage that was shown in the impeachment trial, um, because on the one hand, I mean, we don't often have prophets on the Compact Nation podcast, but that that feels pretty prophetic. That's a pretty good description of what happened. So uh, one version of, of the way I, one would respond to this is say, look, that guy, Melinda, he had it right uh, and we should take notice. I do think there's another possible perspective, which is, uh, you know, the center held like. It was crazy, it was nuts, bad things happened, and in fact, people were hurt and killed. So it is it is not a thing to dismiss. It is also true that the actual results of the election were recognized, that the transition happened, that we have new leadership in the country, and that uh, the, the will of the people in the way that it ought to in a democracy prevailed, and that remaining calm turned out to be the right approach so that for those in leadership positions thinking, okay, I, I kind of held my fire. I preserved uh, my capacity to lead my institution in a very complicated and difficult time. And we're moving into a period where we can expect greater stability. Uh, it, it seems like maybe they, they also have a point of view. I wonder how you think about that now.
0: Yeah. Um, I think we got pretty lucky, Andrew. I mean, I, I, and, and I, I, uh, I, I, your, your description is right. Uh, I've never made a correct political prediction in my life having bet so many people that Ronald Reagan would never be elected president of the United States to say nothing of Donald Trump um, and so uh, I didn't even remember that passage I, I'm surprised that was I surprised I wrote it but uh, and I'm thrilled with myself but um, you know uh, we can look now and say the center held and university presidents uh, are, are are in a better position but a couple of a couple different secretaries of state, or a couple different um, local election leaders, could have made this look very different. And you and I would be sitting here right now saying, "Damn! I wonder if some more active defense by some of our leaders would have made a difference." The question you posed twenty minutes ago about whether it would make a difference or not is part of the crisis of the uh, of the presidency of of of. Uh, of American higher education, right? They used to be different in the 60s and 70s where they did have a bully pulpit, but the pressures that they're under, the stakeholders that they um, uh, need to report to, uh, they're much more like um, CEOs. The other thing I would say uh, in response to that is you're right that uh, university presidents concluded they should remain above the fray, but they're one of the last set of leaders in the United States who have decided that. Um, uh, the military, which um, which has traditionally remained above the fray, has spoken out on this. CEOs of major corporations, who may even stand to lose something, who always think that they should remain above the fray, have spoken out on Trumpism and and lies about about um, electoral electoral fraud. Now, university presidents have not, and so we're behind journalists, who often some journalists try to remain. Have spoken out. We have not. Our leaders have not. And I get that our leaders have a unique commitment to preserving debate, difference. Um, but I don't think that's enough to justify our relative uh, quiescence in, in in the midst of other uh, leaders of other sectors that have gone that have left us behind.
2: Well, Eric, you and I uh, are cooking up some ways to keep this conversation going and to share more aspects of it with uh, folks who are connected to Campus Compact and to higher education more broadly. So I think people will be hearing more from you about these topics. And I really appreciate uh, your thinking about it, sharing those, those thoughts with us today and uh, being a voice for uh, for the public purposes of higher education in a complicated moment. Uh, so thank you so much for the work you're doing and for joining us on the Compact Nation podcast.
0: Thank you very much, Andrew. I enjoyed it and look forward to future conversations.
2: So that was a conversation about some heavy stuff, uh, and it's our new practice to uh, spend a little time uh, meditating on things that uh, spark a little bit of hope or optimism for us. Marisol, what's uh, what's got you thinking positively about the future?
1: Well, um, the other day we got news about um, the Johnson Johnson vaccine vaccine. Um, hopefully being approved uh, this this week. And so uh, that gave me some hope and optimism. So I booked two tickets to Puerto Rico for my son and I to go uh, during his birthday, which is Mother's Day weekend. So I'm hoping that gives us another enough leeway so I can get a a vaccine and uh, go to the island safely. But uh, more than anything, just get out of here and be <laughs> by a beach. I need to be on my island. I've uh, not been uh, to Puerto Rico for a while. And so just needing a little bit of uh, the motherland. Um, so that's given me some hope. Uh, and I booked on Southwest. So if I need to change, it's easy enough to, to do that. So
2: That's good. It It does strike me like we've been all at home. But for people who have more than one place, that's part of what home is uh, that's been a particular challenge to all this. I know, you know, people who either have immigrated to the United States, but are used to being able to make trips home and visit family or people for whom another place is just a significant part of who they are. Uh, yeah, that separation is, is especially acute and has a distinctive character. So I like the idea of you, your son, the son all getting together. That's good. Uh, excellent. Uh, what about you? Well, for me, uh, one of the things that is uh, prompting some hope and optimism is we've just uh, selected our new class of Newman Civic Fellows for the upcoming academic year. And we're looking right ahead, exactly, in the near term to our annual conference of the Newman Civic Fellows. Typically, it's in person. Uh, This year, it will be Online, We're doing it uh, for the first time this year in partnership with the Tisch College of Civic Life at Tufts University, which is exciting for us. Um, And we'd imagined altogether that we would have been doing that in person. So this is a little different from what we were picturing. But, um, you know, this group of students are just an extraordinary group of people sent to us by college presidents who nominate them for their commitment and their contributions and their potential for magnifying those contributions over time to the public good in their communities. And um, I was meeting with a few of them just today about one of the sessions that we're going to be doing at the conference. Uh, And it's just, uh, you know, it, it is striking to me how serious and focused and uh, committed to learning about public issues and doing work and getting things done and bringing more and more of their peers into the work these these students are. And so for me, it's just always a, a pleasure to learn about the things they're doing and to connect with them. And if we can also help them find connections with each other and discover, like I happen to be, this, this call happened to involve three students, I didn't know this going in, that all were kind of headed toward the health professions or health policy. And so they were talking about things they they care about. They all live in different places uh, and ways that they're interested in connecting their peers and other uh, kind of pre-health profession students to understanding Health policy issues and access to healthcare better, um, and it, it's just yeah, it kind of fires you up when you when you hear them. And so we're we're really grateful to our members who give us the opportunity to engage with these students, and looking forward to this conference and then to a year ahead with a new group. And in in the best case, we'll all be able to be in in one place at some point during next year, and that would be terrific.
1: Yeah, I have one more thing too, actually. Yeah. Uh, we just started the uh, anti-racism community of practice. And uh, I have to say that it's given me a lot of hope to just the interest in it. Like we had over 80 people apply to be part of it for 40 slots. And then just the conversations we've been able to begin these last two sessions. And so thinking about the ways that um, we're having meaningful conversations that can move to some significant action. Um and really centering, you know, conversations about, um, what does democracy mean when you're, you're, you're in it from the, you're in it from the margins and, and thinking about the ways that democracy has looked different for, for, uh, different people. And so I'm hopeful about the conversations that we're having, hopeful that'll create, uh, both, uh, personal change in the folks that are participating and that will lead to, Institutional and systemic change. So that's fine too.
2: And and is it a good guess on my part that we may be doing more rounds of that for those who didn't get to participate this time around?
1: Yeah, we will be offering one for the summer. Folks who applied, and then offering another one uh, in the fall. And we'll see. We'll continue to gauge interest, but it's been really powerful, both in the planning because it's a very collective process between all the facilitators and then um, with the folks who are participating. So we're learning a lot uh, and um, yeah, we'll continue to open up those spaces.
2: Excellent. Well, I think that is everything we've got for this installation of the Compact Nation podcast. We thank you, as always, for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you have questions or suggestions, you can email us at podcast at compact.org or on the hashtag compact nation pod on the various social media platforms that you enjoy. That's all I've got, Marisol. Thanks so much. Thanks. Until next time, folks. Bye. Bye-bye. Compact Nation podcast comes to you from Campus Compact's national headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, or the general vicinity. Our hosts are Marisol Morales and me, Andrew Seligson. Our producer is Molly Leeper, a.k.a. Lady Leeper of Steventown. Music is by Andrew Savage. As always, you can find us online at compact.org slash podcast or on social media at hashtag compact nation pod. Thanks for listening.